Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 76. I'm um, going to be talking about uh, a tall case clock by a Thomas Hartland. Okay, a little, little bit of a story here. So, so um, while visiting at a handsome modern house owned by a Connecticut family, I saw standing in the front hall an impressive tall case clock with an engraved dial signed by Thomas Hartland of Norwich, Connecticut. The clock, made between 1780 and 1795, is one of the finest examples of Harland's work, which I have ever encountered. I was struck at first by the fine quality of its mahogany case, which was virtually shouting, I am important, I am an important clock. But it was the engraved dial that really captured my attention. There were figures, banners, flowers, and vines everywhere. A lot of movement. The clock had been in the owner's family for more than 100 years and is one of their prized possessions. But they were planning a move to a smaller house and were ready to sell some of their antiques. So I paid a visit and I was very interested in purchasing some of these clocks or maybe some other pieces that I may find. There was a good Queen Anne-style high boy and some federal period chairs, but the clock really jumped out. It really spoke to me. So as I looked around, um, you know, some of the case had some cracks. The dial was in good condition. Um, uh, but the whole, thing in, in, the whole thing was basically in good condition as a, as a whole. Um, but still, even with some small quirks that needed some adjustment, it made a heck of an impact. So I was pleased to uh, come to an agreement on the clock with the owners and loaded the clock into the van. And uh, so now it's in my collection. So a short trip later, I was back in the shop and uh, the real investigation began. So I started looking closely at the clock's case. Most cases on Harlan clocks are constructed from locally grown cherry or even maple. Only the finest examples were made of mahogany, which was imported at a great expense from the Caribbean and Central America and rarely reached inland ports such as Norwich. Typical of Harlan's most sophisticated case design, the bonnet has a whale's tail scrolled fretwork flanked by matching fluted plinths with twist-carved flame finials. Its slender waist section is supported from below by a rectangular base with intricate scalped moldings and straight bracket feet with applied pads. This is a very special case incorporating the best available materials and carving options. The clock's elaborately engraved brass dial with figures in the 18th century costume representing the four seasons, also suggests a special commission. While the majority of Harlan's dials feature scroll work and acanthus leaf engraving, leaf engraving, he reserved the use of figures for his most important and expensive commissions. Similar figures appear on an important musical clock he made in 1776 and is now in the diplomatic reception room in the United States Department of State. At the upper left of the dial is spring, shown as a woman with flowers in her hair and holding more flowers 
on an outstretched left hand. Summer is at the upper right. A woman holding a sickle in one hand and a sheath of wheat in another. At the lower right is fall, represented by the child of Bacchus riding a wine barrel and holding a bottle in one hand and a glass of wine in the other. And the depiction of winter at the lower left features a man reclining against a bare tree in a barren landscape, a cooking kettle on the ground by his side. The center of the dial features scrolled acanthus leaf cartouches within which each are engraved, Thomas Harland of Norwich. Flowers and vines are above the cartouches and more acanthus leaves are below. The clock with its high quality case and unusual engraved dial clearly has something important to say. But it was the fascinating cryptic engraving on the arch that really set my mind in motion. The imagery um, detailed seems to read like one of a political cartoon that circulated in the colonies in the 18th century. It begins at the left with a depiction of a disfigured man with matted hair and a wrinkled face holding a scroll entitled Act One. Next to him is a round cartouche bordered by a cannon, spears, a battle axe, a trumpet, and a banner reading, Liberty. Inside the cartouche is a group of American Indian men dressed in feathered headdresses, standing alongside two figures on horseback, one of whom carries a banner. To the right of the cartouche is a larger, seated American Indian with a bow in his left hand and a full quiver of arrows across his back. He is leaning on a globe that depicts a single fist-shaped landmass. In the right corner is a cornucopia bursting with a plentiful harvest. What could all this mean? How could it all be tied together? Then it hit me. Act 1. Implements of War a group of Indians with a banner advocating liberty. Could it mean the Boston Tea Party? Possibly. Interestingly, there was a group of papers related to Harlan and the clock tacked inside the waste store. Among the notes and newspaper clippings was a 19th century printed label, possibly from an exhibition or auction. It began with a transcription of Harlan's first advertisement in the Norwich packet on December 9th of 1773. Thomas Harlan, watching clockmaker from London, begs leave to acquaint the public in my area that he has opened a shop near the store of Christopher Lingenfeld in Norwich, where he makes the neatest manner and on the most approved principles horizontal repeating and plain watches in gold, silver, metal, or covered cases. Spring musical and even plain clocks, church clocks, and regulators. So beneath the advertisements, the label states, this clock has been in the possession of the Salter family certainly for over 80 years, probably over 90 years. Hartford, November 1778. This was just a just to the right, but back in 1778, the clock was probably a little more than 90 years old itself. Then when I saw the letter tucked into an envelope inside the door, it was written by the noted Civil War general and the clockmaker's grandson, Edward Harlan, to J.C. Parsons, possibly the lawyer, John C., 
of Hartford, an ancestor of the couple for whom we purchased the clock. It appears to have been a response to the inquiry. Parsons had written, or had handwritten, to General Harlan uh, regarding the clock, and Harlan's reply addressed to my dear Parsons and dated around uh, 1878 reads, The Thomas Harlan of whom you acquire was my grandfather. He came to Norwich in 1773 and died in 1807. He arrived in Boston December 3rd on one of the ships which brought the tea that was thrown over in the harbor and came directly to Norwich. I sent a copy of the first advertisement in the packet, a newspaper published in Norwich at the same time. Harlan was born in England and completed his apprenticeship as a clockmaker in London in 1760. As the letter implies, he left England in 1773 to ply his craft in the colonies, arriving in Boston and settling in Norwich less than a week later. His clock and watchmaking business was highly successful, due in part to the widespread acceptance of the non-importation agreements that banned goods from being imported from England. So in 1778, he purchased property and a shop from the hat maker David Nevins. The following year, he married Hannah Clark and soon after built a larger house for his wife and family. He continued to expand his business and by 1790 was working from a larger shop, employing as many as 10 to 12 apprentices, producing clocks, watches, and silverwares. And during the first five years of the 1790s, the estimated output of his shop was approximately 40 clocks and 200 watches per year. It is likely that Hartford imported watch movements from England, but his shop made the silver cases. So in December of 1795, the business was destroyed by fire. Harlan returned to the shop he had purchased from Nevins in 1778, which he continued to operate till he died in, in 1807. One piece of Harlan's biography seems to represent a clue of the cryptic engraving the arch of the case of the dial clock. According to the letter written by his grandson, Harlan had arrived in Boston on one of the ships which brought tea that was thrown over into the harbor. Could the Im imagery on the dial represent a Boston Tea Party or even the American Revolution? In this figure, um, in my mind, it's meant... I think this main figure on the top is meant to be a maybe a tax collector or um, I find that the uh, the individual engraved there uh, himself is reading the stamp act possibly. And the, there are other men around converging under a banner of liberty, uh, which some were sons of uh, members of the Sons of Liberty dressed as Indians on their way to Boston Harbor for the uh, the tea burning. So the first of the tea ships arrived in Boston was the Dartmouth, which docked at Griffin's Wharf on November 28th of 1773 and was immediately placed under guard by the Sons of Liberty with strict orders that no tea shall be landed. Next to arrive were the Eleanor on December 2nd and the Beaver on December 15th. It is most likely <coughs> Harlan had sailed on the Eleanor, arriving on December 2nd and disembarking the following day. 
the strong opposition within the colonies to the 1765 Stamp Act and the 1767 Townsend Act was well known in England, and there were widely held expectations that a confrontation would arise when this large shipment of tea owned by the British East India Company arrived in Boston in 1773. One wonders what Harlem might have thought if he loaded uh, his inventory and tools aboard one of the three ships scheduled to bring the tea to Boston Harbor, and whether unwittingly or intentionally he found himself in the midst of a great social upheaval. The excitement in Boston must have been... The excitement um, uh, in Boston must have really spoiled over as the situation came to a head when 16, a group of 16 of the Sons of Liberty, dressed as American Indians, marched to Griffin's Wharf, boarded the ships, and threw 342 chests of tea worth about 15,000 pounds into Boston Harbor. It is possible that Harlan's presence at the scene prompting him to record it in the engraving on the arch above the clock style. I discovered the final piece of the puzzle while researching the Salter family, who, according to the label on the door, had owned the clock from about 1788 to 1878. A search of the catalog at the Connecticut State Library in Hartford revealed that the Reverend Richard Salter delivered a sermon to the General Assembly of the Connecticut Colony on Election Day. May 12, 1768, three years after the Stamp Act was enacted. The text of the sermon revealed Salter to be a patriot who was ardently opposed to the act. In it, he used the biblical story of Mordelagi from the book of Esther to outline the proper role of government for a free society. Comparing the voluminous Persian state minister Haman to George III. He went on to attack the Stamp Act directly, as well as the government that enacted it. These are bold assertions coming to quickly into play after the passage of the Stamp Act on Election Day in the General Assembly. Indeed, Salter, like many clergymen, continued to be an outspoken clergyman, during, uh, which led up all the way to the Revolution. According to the history of the Wyndham County, Connecticut, on May 27, 1775, General Israel Putnam of the Connecticut stopped his troops in Mansfield, Connecticut, on the way to Cambridge, Massachusetts, to attend prayers and sermon delivered by Reverend Salter. Less than two weeks later, Putnam and his troops were fighting for their lives and their freedom at the Battle of Bunker Hill. The connection between Harland and Salter and the Boston Tea Party may explain the rare and and unusual engraving on the dial of this fine clock I witnessed. The scroll entitled Act One could refer to the Stamp Act, the Townsend Act, or even many number regulations and acts enacted to expand English control over the colonies, including the Quraysh Acts, which also called which were also called the Intolerable Acts, passed in 1774 in direct response to the Boston Tea Party. Act One of the Corrective Acts was known as the Boston Port Bill 
and closed Boston Harbor until payment was received for the sea that was then destroyed. The Boston Port Bill also required the Massachusetts government to acknowledge the right of the king to collect duties such as the tax on tea. The conflict came to an immense impasse and the intolerable acts quickly became a rallying cry for patriots throughout the colonies. So, as just suggested, the groups of figures that <clears throat> that belonged to the Sons of Liberty dressed as American Indians on the way to Boston Harbor ended up being arrested. But to the right of the um, of the large figure on the American Indian holding a bow and arrows in the symbol carved or uh, engraved on the dial, this symbolic icon of American colonies during the 18th century uh, proves the, and basically says how um, the Englishmen have really ran over the Indians. The landmass on the globe on the dial may represent the city of Boston. For one 18th century map, shows the city's north end, a hotbed of revolutionary activity and the home of Paul Revere and many of the Sons of Liberty. So as a similar fist-shaped piece of, fist-shaped piece of land, the cornucopia to the far right has been a symbol of prosperity and abundance dating back to the Roman mythology. During the period this clock was made, the newly independent United States was beginning to thrive and prosper. A tall case clock made with fine imported materials, including mahogany, and featured a dial engraving with patriotic motifs, would have been an important token of the rewards reaped through the sacrifices made by numerous patriots throughout the struggle for freedom. And that's Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing off. Thanks, everyone, for listening.